Talks on Psychoanalysis shares topics published in the IPA Society Journals and Congress Debates Worldwide, brought to you in the voices of the original authors. We hope this window will allow you to experience the depth and breadth of psychoanalytic thought around the world. This podcast has been created by Gaetano Pellegrini and edited by Gaetano Pellegrini and Andy Cohen. Introduction read by Andy Cohen. To stay informed about the latest podcast releases, please sign up today. In today's episode, Mark Soames generously summarizes his latest book, The Hidden Spring, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness, and highlights in 10 clear principles his thoughts. He shows us how the source of consciousness is deeply bound up with our affects and traces the key concepts of psychoanalysis in light of the most recent neuroscientific discoveries. In his work, he not only unveils those experimental confirmations that Freud himself hoped for since the beginning of his theories, but also arrives with an admirable clarity to specify some evolutionary junctions for the current psychoanalytic models. Mark Soames is one of a small number of scientists making this important argument, and we are glad to welcome him here today. Mark Soames is a South African psychoanalyst and neuropsychologist who is known for his discovery of the brain mechanisms of dreaming and his use of psychoanalytic concepts in contemporary neuroscience. He holds various senior positions in international organizations for psychoanalysis, neuroscience, and neuropsychoanalysis. For his full bio, please visit the details page of this podcast episode, where you'll also find the references for his book and for the two papers he cites in his talk. Hello, my name's Mark Solms. I'm going to talk to you about my new book with the title The Hidden Spring and the subtitle The Journey uh, to the Source of Consciousness. Um, this book is not written for a psychoanalytic readership. Um, it's written actually for a general uh, audience. Um, but psychoanalytic ideas are fundamental to the book. So um, for the purposes of this um, summary for the IPA, um, I'm going to foreground the psychoanalytic um, underpinnings of my attempt to tackle the hard problem of consciousness, which is what the book is fundamentally about. I'm going to tell you um, 10 things, uh, organizing the summary around 10 points. The first is the basic psychoanalytic ideas uh, which undergird the whole uh, of the book. Those are, firstly, that most cognition is unconscious. This was once a uniquely psychoanalytic position. Um, it's gradually become a mainstream um, uh, idea in cognitive neuroscience. So, um, although, as I say, this is a fundamentally psychoanalytic notion, um, it's, it's no longer controversial in cognitive science. In contrast to most cognition being unconscious, the second uh, basic psychoanalytic idea that this book 
is predicated on is that affect is intrinsically conscious. Now, these two ideas, uh, the idea that, that cognition is fundamentally unconscious and that affect is inherently conscious, um, Strachey, in an appendix to Freud's Neuropsychoses of Defense, published in 1894, Strachey made the point that this distinction between cognition and affect, uh, between representation and drive, is one of Freud's most fundamental theoretical notions. So uh, when I say that the book is built upon basic psychoanalytic ideas, it is uh, built upon ideas which Strachey recognized were absolutely fundamental to the whole of Freud's thinking. Now, I know that the second of these points, namely that affect is intrinsically conscious, is controversial. Um, even psychoanalysts, many psychoanalysts, don't accept uh, Freud's argument that affects, by definition, are conscious. So I want to say a few words to address this point before I proceed. Of course, I acknowledge that there are defences against the feeling of affects. And this is the point that Freud makes, that there are ways of defending against affect. Uh, but that's not the point. The point is that when the affect uh, is not defended against, in other words, when the affect is actually allowed to evolve, uh, then it is inherently conscious. It makes no sense to speak of a feeling that you don't feel. This is an absolute oxymoron. So what I'm speaking about when I speak about affect is felt affect, and this is intrinsically conscious. Why this is important is because the hard problem of consciousness has focused mainly upon cognitive mechanisms, cortical mechanisms of consciousness, um, and uh, it's got itself more or less nowhere uh, for that very reason. Um, if you're looking for the source of consciousness um, and you look to mental processes, uh, that is to say cognition, and the brain processes that undergird those mental processes, that is to say cortical functions, uh, and if those things are not intrinsically conscious, then it's the wrong place to look for the fundamental mechanisms of consciousness. It makes much more sense to look to affect, to feelings, which are inherently conscious things, as I keep saying, um, if you want to understand uh, what consciousness is all about. We should look to this most fundamental form of consciousness called affect. So that's the first of the 10 points I'm going to make uh, in this summary. Now I move to the second point, which builds upon the first. Affect is the subjective side of drive. It's how we become aware of our drives. Uh, let me make a fundamental distinction between needs and drives. We have many needs. For example, uh, we have a need for energy supplies, we have a need to sleep, uh, we have a need to uh, urinate, etc. Uh, I'm speaking here of bodily needs. I'll come to uh, emotional ones later. My point is that it makes a difference whether you feel the need or not. It's only when you feel the need 
that it becomes a drive. For example, uh, we are constantly uh, metabolizing uh, our body's sugar supplies, um, which are stored in our adipose tissues. Uh, this is the unconscious regulation or non-conscious regulation of bodily needs. It's only when uh, th that need rises to the level of a drive that we feel it. That is to say, we feel hunger. The, 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 the drive to eat is the feeling of hunger. There is no drive prior to that. We, we can't speak of the metabolizing of sugar, um, the regulation of blood pressure, um, the unconscious control of respiration, etc. Uh, we can't speak of these things as drives because they are not making demands upon the mind for work. Now, remember, that was Freud's definition of drive. Freud's definition of drive in his paper, Drives and Their Vicissitudes, was that drives are a measure of the demand made upon the mind for work by virtue of the connection between the mind and the body. And the operative part of that definition, as I'm saying, is that it's a demand upon the mind. Until uh, it is felt hunger, uh, it is not a drive. And this is, this is the point that I'm making. Uh, let me give another example. Sticking still with bodily needs, um, we need to urinate. Uh, our bladders are constantly uh, expanding um, as they fill up with urine. We don't feel that until we prioritize it. Uh, so, for example, I might give a two-hour lecture. My bladder is filling up all the time. Uh, only at the end of the lecture uh, do I become aware of my need to urinate. That's because it now becomes the priority. Um, and there are complex brain mechanisms that regulate this prioritization function. Um, and you all know from your own experience, uh, once you become aware that your bladder is full, it is a and, 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 and there's a compelling demand uh, that you need to void uh, your bladder. This is what I mean by drive. And it is fundamentally the same as what Freud means by drive. It's the demand made upon the mind for work. It's not an autonomic regulation of bodily needs. Now, um, Freud recognized that the becoming conscious of drive in the form of affect, is the basic form of consciousness. It's the foundational form of consciousness, uh, it, 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 both in the functional sense and in the evolutionary sense. The dawn of consciousness was feeling. Organisms becoming aware uh, of their own needs. Freud made the point that this is the basic form of consciousness in the interpretation of dreams already in 1900. Um, and he reiterated it very clearly um, in his two his formulations on the two principles of mental functioning, uh, which was published in 1911. It was only in 1924, um, when Freud, Freud wrote on the economic problem of masochism, that he combined uh, his concept of consciousness uh, as being fundamentally the registration of the of the demand uh, made, uh, the pressure building up within the apparatus of the mind, felt in the pleasure-unpleasure series. Um, it was only in 1924 that he combined that system with the perceptual system. 
And from then onwards, he spoke of a system, perceptual consciousness. Um, now, this is most unfortunate because perception is not intrinsically conscious. Unlike affect, perception is a form of cognition, and uh, it is now generally recognized uh, that it is uh, not inherently a conscious process. So this leads me to the third point I'm wanting to make in this summary. Perception is not the same thing as consciousness. Consciousness uh, in its foundational form is affect, uh, and it's only secondarily that our affects extend onto perception. I feel like this about that. The about that um, is a second order of business. Now, when I say that perception is not intrinsically conscious, let me give you an experimental example. Uh, you can take a research participant um, and uh, uh, um, flash visual information uh, to their eyes uh, in, an in, in an apparatus called a tachistoscope, which flashes that information so briefly, uh, really just for a few milliseconds, so briefly that the research participant isn't aware of having seen anything at all, let alone the content of what was flashed. So um, in uh, an experiment that I foreground in my book, um, research participants are flashed a, a face, uh, and underneath that face is written the word rapist. Let's call that face A. Then, again, ever so briefly, they're flashed face B, under which is written the word philanthropist. After this information has been flashed to them, unconsciously, they, they are unaware of having seen anything, um, they are then shown these two same faces, supraliminally, and asked which of the two faces they prefer. They say, I don't know, I've never seen these faces before. But when uh, uh, obliged to make a forced choice, the vast majority of research participants choose face B. When asked why they've chosen face B, they just say, I don't know, gut feeling. I just have a better feeling uh, about this person than that one. Please note that what has driven their choice is a feeling. So the feeling is conscious. They feel better disposed toward face B than they do toward face A. Um, the only distinction is that they don't know where the feeling came from. So the feeling is conscious, the preference is conscious, the value um, uh, proposition, as it were, is conscious, uh, but the patient does not know where those values, those inclinations, those gut feelings come from. This, uh, in the psychoanalytic situation, is central. Our patients feel things, they just don't know where those feelings come from. And uh, this kind of experiment demonstrates the basic distinction that I started with, namely that affects are conscious things um, and cognitions are intrinsically unconscious. Um, even cognitions of a uniquely human form, like reading with comprehension. Uh, this is something that only human cortex can do. But even this incredibly sophisticated form of mental gymnastics does not require consciousness, uh, which then raises the question that if our cognitions can uh, proceed unconsciously, even these higher forms of cognition like reading and face recognition, then why are we ever conscious of our cognitions? And this is a point that I will address in due course. This leads me to the fourth point in my summary. 
where does this feeling that we don't know where it comes from, where does it come from if we consider the question uh, neuroscientifically? Where do feelings arise? Well, turns out feelings do not arise in the cortex. They are not generated in the cortex. They're generated in the brain stem. The brain stem is a very ancient structure. Uh, its basic anatomy in human beings is the same as it is in all vertebrates. That means it's more than 500 million years old. And it's from this structure that we share with lowly creatures like fishes and reptiles. Um, it's from there that affect arises. Uh, the most dramatic demonstration of this, uh, which I uh, spell out in my book, is what, we've, what we observe in hydranencephalic children. These are children who are born without a cortex. That's what hydranencephaly means. It means instead of a cortex, you have just cerebrospinal fluid. Now, if we observe these children with absolutely no cortex, which is supposedly the organ of consciousness, uh, these children are conscious, even though they don't have that organ. Uh, by conscious, I don't only mean that they wake up in the morning and go to sleep at night. Uh, I mean also that they show affective behavior. They show full range of basic emotions, uh, and those emotional displays, uh, uh, the behaviors uh, expressing those emotions, uh, are, are uh, um, apparent in situationally specific and appropriate contexts. In other words, the child shows frustration if they're impeded from getting what they want. Uh, they show joy uh, if they get what they want. Uh, they show startle reactions uh, if they are uh, frightened, um, etc. So the emotional uh, responses are appropriate to the situations that they're in. And they show intentional behavior. They strive for the things that they want, and they avoid the things uh, that, they, that they don't want, that they dislike. So this is, as I say, the most sort of striking evidence uh, for the fact that feelings, affects, arise not from the cortex but from the brainstem. I'm sure that many of you would be doubtful about the, uh, how certain can we be uh, that these children actually feel uh, these emotions. Um, how do we know that they aren't just displaying uh, the behaviors reflexively, um, instinctually, as it were, behavioral stereotypes without any underlying feeling? So we don't rely just on that one method of studying what happens uh, if there's a lesion, if, if there's damage anatomically uh, to the cortex. We use other methods um, to, to confirm uh, the, the, the evidence from uh, those children uh, that all you need is a brain stem uh, to, um, to, to uh, display affectivity. One of the methods that we use is we use deep brain stimulation. Uh, in other words, in patients who are, have an intact cortex, uh, adult patients, uh, we stimulate the, 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 the deep brainstem structures uh, that I'm talking about, uh, namely the periaqueductal gray and the reticular activating system. We stimulate these structures in awake patients and they report intense affective states. 
for example, you can bring about a suicidal depression in a person who has no psychiatric history. You can bring about a suicidal depression in five seconds um, if you stimulate the substantia nigra, which is a part of the reticular activating system. So this other method demonstrates that those structures which are preserved in those kids, um, if you stimulate them, it generates an affective feeling, a very intense one. Um, and you can generate a great variety of affects um, in those brainstem structures. So this suggests uh, that it's actually uh, this, the source of feeling is those brainstem nuclei. Another method is positron emission tomography. We scan uh, the normal human beings who are experiencing intense emotions, um, and we look where in the brain is the activation uh, that correlates with the mental state that they're in. And we find that that activation, again, is not cortical, but subcortical. It's in the upper brain stem for the most part. So that's the third line of evidence. A fourth line of evidence comes from psychopharmacology. Uh, the drugs that we use, that psychiatrists use, to treat emotional disorders, um, things like antidepressant drugs, which boost serotonin, or anti-anxiety drugs which reduce noradrenaline, um, or antipsychotic drugs which reduce dopamine. These chemicals, these brain chemicals, neuromodulators, serotonin, noradrenaline, dopamine, they are all sourced in the reticular activating system of the brain stem. That's where the, the cell bodies are, the, 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 the neurons uh, that that broadcast um, these feelings via these neuromodulators throughout the forebrain. Um, their location is in the upper brain stem. So all of these different lines of evidence show that what the upper brain stem is doing is producing a form of consciousness, the most basic and ancient form of consciousness, um, namely feelings. And when I say the most basic, it's not only in the sense of evolutionary age, but also in the sense that the cortex is not capable of consciousness unless it is activated from below, from these brainstem structures. So that shows that all cognitive consciousness is contingent upon, dependent upon, uh, um, affective consciousness. The form of consciousness that's, that's generated in the brainstem is a necessary prerequisite for any other form of consciousness. And this is really important for psychoanalysts, again, to recognize what we know from our clinical work, but which is so sorely neglected in the cognitive neurosciences, uh, namely that affect behind which lies drive, uh, that, that this is the engine of the mind. All of our cognition is ultimately in the service of meeting our bodily and emotional needs. This leads me to the fifth point. Those structures in the upper brain stem which give rise to consciousness uh, function according to a mechanism known as homeostasis. Now, homeostasis was discovered in the 1930s, toward the end, in fact, in the late 1920s, but only became generally known in the 1930s, long after Freud had developed his drive theories, both of them. Homeostasis is the basic mechanism whereby we stay alive. We living organisms have needs, uh, needs being. Uh, 
specific physiological parameters within which we have to remain in order to stay alive. So uh, there's a specific temperature range, a specific amount of water in relation to salt, a specific amount of oxygen in relation to carbon dioxide, a, a specific blood pressure range, etc., that we have to remain within in order to remain viable as living creatures. So when we use the word need, what we mean is deviation from our homeostatic set points. If you deviate from the uh, set point, the range that is, that is viable, uh, then you're in a state of need. Um, and that uh, we can equate with Freud's concept of drive. Um, when, when it rises to the level of felt need, and I'll explain that uh, in my sixth point, my next point. But for now, let's just stick with the very basic mechanism. Freud, as I told you before, defined drive as a measure of the demand made upon the mind to perform work. And the measure is the degree of deviation from your homeostatic set point. So moving away from that set point means increasing need. Moving back toward that set point means decreasing need. Um, and that is the fundamental mechanism that underpins drive. Um, when it comes to the level of feeling, uh, you feel that need. And so increasing deviation from the set point is felt unpleasure. And decreasing deviation from the set point is felt pleasure. That's what unpleasure and pleasure are. They are measures of the demand upon the mind to perform work, work being what is required to get us back into our viable range. So Freud's pleasure principle uh, can now be uh, grounded in homeostasis, in this fundamental um, life-sustaining mechanism, which is, which is so central in all biology. I need to point out that uh, had Freud known about homeostasis, he would have formulated his pleasure principle very differently. As I've just described it, the pleasure-unpleasure continuum is not a continuum. It's not a continuous line on the one end of which lies unpleasure and at the other end of which lies pleasure. That's how Freud conceptualized it. And Freud thought we're always avoiding unpleasure and seeking more pleasure. It isn't a continuum. It's an oscillator. It's a deviation away from and back towards a set point. And why that's important is because what we are aiming for there is not more and more pleasure. Pleasure just, just registers I'm heading in the right direction. Uh, unpleasure means I'm heading in the wrong direction. But what the ultimate goal is, is no feeling at all. In other words, to have satisfied the need to be back in the set point, back in the range that's viable, um, at which we call satiation. And at that point, feeling is, uh, goes off the radar. So uh, that, uh, if had Freud understood that, uh, he would have not been so perplexed as to why do we not seek more and more pleasure all the time? Why do we seem to be seeking something deeper than that, something to quote Freud, beyond the pleasure principle, namely tranquility, no need, quiescence. This Freud called the Nirvana principle, which uh, he realized in 1920 
is something deeper than, something beyond the pleasure principle. Had Freud known about homeostasis, uh, he would have recognized that the pleasure principle is in the service of the nirvana principle. Um, And he would have realized that nirvana, uh, in other words, quiescence, no demand upon the mind for work, uh, is far from being a deathly state. It is, in fact, the ideal state of living things. The ideal state is to be within the range that's viable, to have no need. Now, at this point, I need to uh, say to my psychoanalytic colleagues, of course, I recognize the clinical phenomena and the developmental phenomena that Freud um, uh, conceptualized under the heading of a death drive. Those phenomena exist, but they are not the expression of a drive, and they're not an expression of the nirvana principle in and of itself. They are aberrations. Uh, This is why we speak of clinical phenomena, uh, suicidality, um, addiction, Uh, eating disorder, uh, etc. These are not the expression of a drive. Uh, These are are aberrations. That's why they are clinical phenomena. Uh, And I I will just very briefly deal with those by saying that I see those as a um, short-circuiting of the principle whereby we can meet our biological needs. Uh, The way which we need to meet them, this demand upon the mind for work, requires just that, work. We have to go out into reality and find what's what's necessary um, in order to satisfy the underlying um, need. In other words, the underlying deviation from our viable bounds. Uh, If we short-circuit that uh, by, uh, by creating the illusion of the satisfaction of that need, uh, by not going via reality, but rather by going via, for example, a drug, uh, which gives you the illusion, rather than uh, the, the meeting the need uh, for attachment uh, objects, uh, which make us feel warm and fuzzy. Uh, you can just inject heroin into your arm and feel warm and fuzzy without doing the work. Uh, but that ends badly because we actually do need um, the, the, not just the feeling, uh, but the, the work needs to be done to actually achieve uh, reunion with the attachment figure. Um, otherwise, it's just an omnipotent uh, fantasy. Uh, it's, it's an illusion. That's what's deadly. The, the, the notion that I can get rid of all my uh, frustrations by killing myself for, is a further example. Uh, this, is, this is not really meeting the underlying need. Um, it's, it's the expression of an omnipotent fantasy. So those phenomena exist, but uh, they are not the expression of an innate drive. The nirvana principle exists. Uh, and it is not deathly, it is the ideal state of the living organism. Now I come to my sixth point, uh, which is what does feeling add to homeostasis? Because there are many homeostatic mechanisms uh, in the body, and uh, many creatures have only autonomic homeostasis. There's no feeling of the uh, need. And uh, I keep making the point, the feeling of the need adds something new, uh, what we call drive. Drive being Uh, the capacity of the organism to know uh, what its current state is. And what this adds is something absolutely fundamental. It enables the creature to make choices. Um, If you only have autonomic mechanisms, if the demand for work is always met by a stereotyped solution, like a reflex, uh, then you can only deal with predictable situations, situations that are predicted by your phenotype built into your your genome. Uh, If you have the capacity to feel, 
then when you're in an unpredicted situation, one for which there is not a predetermined reflex or instinct that meets that need, then you can feel your way through the problem. This is what feeling is for. And it enables the animal, which includes us, to make choices. Uh, We are guided by what feels better um, and feels worse, and we make our choices accordingly. What is more, we can then learn from that experience and lay down predictions. Lay down, that is to say, predictions based on past experience of what to do in the future when we find ourselves in a similar situation. So what feeling does, remember feeling is the subjective side of drive, as opposed to autonomic need regulation. Drive is a demand upon the mind for work. It's a felt demand, um, and it guides voluntary action. That is to say choice. Choice has to be grounded in a value system where something is better than something else. Um, And the way in which those values uh, are communicated to us subjectively is through feelings. Unpleasurable feelings are worse than pleasurable feelings, which are better. And what underpins that uh, is survival. The basic value system that underpins all life is that it's good to survive and to reproduce and bad not to. And so feeling is the way in which the subject of the mind becomes aware of those values. And those values can guide its behavior, transcending automaticity uh, and, and, uh, and rendering possible choice and therefore voluntary behavior. Now I come to my seventh point. Um, the, there's a, a basic distinction which has been implicit in what I'm saying so far between needs and drives on the one hand and predictions, which I just mentioned, as to how do we satisfy those needs uh, and drives. Now we are born with reflexes and instincts. These are innate predictions as to how to meet our needs. Uh, and then, as I've just explained, we then learn from experience and supplement those innate predictions uh, with, 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 with memory. Uh, this uh, bestows this additional capacity that I've just described under my sixth point, the capacity for choice and voluntary behavior and for learning from experience. Now, predictions are the essence of cognition. So the distinction that I spoke about right at the outset between affects and cognitions, uh, it coincides with the distinction between needs or drives on the one hand and predictions, that is to say memory systems on the other hand. And those memory systems start with instinctual memories in inverted commas, which are not really memories, they're inherited dispositions. And then we, because those are too stereotyped, too simple, that they can't deal with unpredicted situations, so we have this additional capacity for learning from experience, and that's what the memory systems are all about. You'll notice that this distinction that I'm drawing between needs and predictions, between affects and cognitions, coincides with Freud's distinction between id and ego. It is the ego's task, the great task of mental development, is to learn from experience how to meet our needs. Uh, Over and above our innate instinctual solutions, uh, we have to find better, more flexible, more nuanced, more context-dependent solutions that fit the niche that we find ourselves in, the particular circumstances of our own individual lives. Um, And so that's the task of ego development, of learning from experience, individualization of our predictive model. Now I need to make the point that these predictions, uh, what we're looking for is reliable, generalizable predictions. We don't 
we don't want to have to reinvent the wheel every day. So when we've found a solution, uh, if it's reliably uh, 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 and generalizably a valid prediction, then that prediction gets automatized. And in cognitive neuroscience, we speak of different uh, levels of memory systems. Uh, in long-term memory, at the deepest level is what we call non-declarative memories. Uh, these are unconscious predictions that are automatized because they so reliably uh, meet the underlying need. Then there are declarative memory systems, which are more superficial. These are predictions which can be brought back to consciousness so that we can feel our way through those problems afresh. Um, and then at the very top of the predictive hierarchy is what we call short-term memory, which is consciousness. So those three levels that I've just described coincide with Freud's systems, unconscious, pre-conscious, and conscious. Um, and uh, these are levels in a, in a predictive hierarchy uh, where the highest level is where the greatest uncertainty is, where things still need to be revised. Um, and as we go through the system deeper and deeper, so we get more automatic uh, predictions, more automatized, more generalized, uh, and there's less and less uh, requirement of, for consciousness for that reason. Because consciousness, feeling, uh, is for making choices, which we only require in, in conditions of uncertainty. Um, I don't discuss in my book uh, much about our understanding of that portion of the unconscious that we call the repressed. So I'll just mention in passing here that uh, this is uh, my understanding of repression is that these are prematurely automatized predictions, illegitimately automatized predictions. Predictions, that is to say, solutions that the child comes up with in overwhelming situations, in, in, in problems that it can't solve, um, then uh, in order to um, escape the overwhelming affects, uh, the child automatizes predictions prematurely, uh, which don't really meet the underlying need. Um, there's much more to be said about that, but I see I've spoken for a long time already. I better move on. Um, so I will just say under point eight uh, that there's a multiplicity of needs. Uh, I've spoken so far of bodily needs, uh, but there are also emotional needs. Um, and uh, the emotional needs, we now understand very well uh, the, 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 um, the different um, uh, innate needs of the human mind. Uh, and uh, I'm speaking of emotional ones. Uh, there's lust, of course. There's also something called seeking, uh, which Freud conflated with lust. It's a general all-purpose um, object-seeking, uh, foraging drive. Um, then there's rage, uh, the need to get rid of frustrating impediments. Then there's fear, uh, the need to escape dangers. Then there's panic and grief, uh, the need to keep caregivers, attachment figures nearby. And then there's care, the need to nurture little vulnerable ones. And then there's play. Um, and in my book, I explain uh, what, how all of these emotional needs work. This provides us with a new drive theory, uh, a drive theory that is consistent with everything that we've learned uh, in the decades following Freud's uh, attempts to sketch a drive theory. Uh, drive theories, which Freud always acknowledged, would be replaced uh, in the light of future biological findings. Um, and in my book, I summarize what those findings are. It's really important clinically, again, uh, to if we think that there are only two drives, um, that there's a life drive and a death drive, um, then we are greatly mistaken. 
there are seven emotional drives in addition to all the bodily drives. And to recognize these drives, these are the emotional needs of the human being. Um, and to the extent that our patients have not learned how to meet those drive demands, to that extent, they suffer from feelings. Our patients suffer mainly from feelings. Um, and what explains those feelings is these uh, prematurely automatized predictions that we call the repressed. These uh, predictions are enacted in the transference. Uh, I'm using the word transference broadly. In other words, the patient transfers from the infantile situation onto their current object relationships, uh, the predictive solutions that they prematurely automatized uh, in relation to those needs that they could not master, those problems that they could not solve as children. Again, there's much more I could say about all of that. Forgive me, I have to move on. Um, my ninth point out of the ten is that this uh, great task that I spoke of, of the ego as development, that we have to learn how to meet our needs uh, in the worlds that we find ourselves in, uh, this we speak of in, 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 in theoretical neuroscience today as our predictive model. Uh, our predictive model, uh, the, 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 the ego's task, is to develop as efficient, realistic, uh, a, a workable predictive model as possible. And uh, in contemporary theoretical neuroscience, we measure the efficiency of the predictive model uh, in terms of a thing called free energy. Free energy is just basically the energy within the system that is not being applied uh, in useful work. Uh, the energy that is being efficiently uh, uh, applied uh, in order to meet the needs of the, of the organism, we call bound energy. Uh, and the wasted energy, the inefficiently applied energy, is free energy. Uh, that, that distinction between free and bound energy, any Freudian will recognize. Uh, this is basic thermodynamics. Uh, Freud uh, drew these concepts from Helmholtz, um, and various very same ideas are at the forefront of contemporary theoretical neuroscience. The minimization of free energy just is the minimization of homeostatic errors, deviations from our needs. So the improvement in our predictive model uh, means less deviation from our homeostatic set points, uh, means less free energy, more bound energy, more effective predictive work, uh, more effective learning how to meet our needs in the world. What's terribly important is by linking this absolutely basic uh, model of psychoanalysis uh, as bequeathed to us by Freud, by linking it with contemporary theoretical and computational neuroscience, we are able to quantify these energies. And energy, uh, let me remind those of you who no longer think in Freudian terms, uh, that every system that does anything has to have an energy source. There has, it has to, I mean, this is like absolutely basic thermodynamics, uh, that you can't do any work without energy. Freud called it psychical energy, which has become an embarrassment to many psychoanalysts. But there has to be a psychical energy. Um, and what I show in my book is that this energy uh, that we have to convert uh, from the free into the bound state in, 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 in line with the first law of thermodynamics, um, this, and the second for that matter, uh, the re reduction of entropy uh, is what homeostasis is all about. Uh, that, that through the free energy principle uh, in contemporary uh, computational neuroscience, 
we can link Freud's most basic ideas uh, with with uh, with uh, the, the, the latest developments in neuroscience uh, and render the render these models quantifiable it was Freud's great dream, uh, starting with the project for a scientific psychology, that it might one day be possible to quantify these things, these most basic mechanisms uh, underpinning what we what we call mental life. And uh, through the free energy principle, we are now able to do that. Um, th- there's a lot more uh, that, that uh, I uh, spell out in the book. Uh, I'll just mention here that uh, our understanding of the underlying physics uh, as to how uh, homeostatic systems arise, they arise out of the principle of self-organization. Uh, and uh, I explain uh, in my book how self-organization is how selves come about, how selfhood comes about, um, the organization of a system which seeks to continue existing um, uh, is the kind of ground zero of selfhood. And uh, I, I spell out um, in detail in my book uh, how, we can, how we can achieve these goals of Freud's project, of his earliest uh, um, attempts at a meta-psychology with these latest developments in neuroscience, uh, which uh, will uh, place our or can place does place uh, our basic theory um, uh, in 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 uh, in uh, on a very solid foundation. Uh, the reviews of my book um, happily have uh, uh, have said this. It's a, it's really a, 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 an important rehabilitation of ba- basic Freudian notions. A, a recognition uh, by the reviewers that Freud had the basic uh, 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 the basic concepts. Uh, in his grasp more than a hundred years ago, and that we are we're, we're, these these very same ideas are now at the cutting edge of contemporary neuroscience. I will end with my tenth point, uh, which is to say that uh, for those of you who don't want to read this whole book, which, as I said, is not directed primarily at a psychoanalytic audience, um, I've written two papers which um, which um, uh, present these same ideas. Uh, to a psychoanalytic uh, readership. The first is entitled Revision of Drive Theory, um, and I'm publishing that in JAPA, the Journal of the American Psychoanalytic Association, in October this year. And uh, the second is New Project for a Scientific Psychology, which is a revision of Freud's project, which which I've just published in the journal Neuropsychoanalysis. Um, There's, in fact, going to be a study group Studying those papers, especially the new project, um, if anyone wants to have a preprint of the revision of drive theory or a, a PDF of the new project for a scientific psychology, and or if you want to join that study group, then please just email me. My address is mark.solms at neuropsa.org. Mark with a K dot Solms at neuro, as in brain, PSA, Peter Stephen Anthony, all of that's one word, neuropsa.org, O-R-G. I apologize for speaking for so long. Thanks very much for listening. And read my book. Bye.